Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Yeah, Gavin, I know. But there were four Beatles to equal the fame of one Elvis. That's just math, man. That's just math. Ass. The following podcast contains... Other trucker that hurt like a butt cheek on a stick. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you booked your vacation plans at a place called the Heartbreak Hotel, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 310, Gladys's Special Little Boy, part one of the life and afterlife of Elvis Presley, where we talk about the king of rock and roll, Little Richard. Nah, I'm kidding. We're talking about Elvis. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Captain Eddie's Music Management. Are you a young naive with aspirations of being the next big thing in music? Then Captain Eddie is here to help you reach the top. Captain Eddie is ready to manage your career and your life. Captain Eddie will book your gigs, find you a label, get you on television, and make you into the star you were always destined to be. Captain Eddie's No Worry contract will manage every sit you make to ensure you have just enough money for now, and Captain Eddie will take care of the future. Captain Eddie knows you want the wildlife of a big rock star and will make sure you want for nothing. Booze, drugs, babes, Captain Eddie will handle it for a reasonable fee, and when it comes time for your inevitable rehab and comeback tour, Captain Eddie will be there too. So if you're a rube fresh off the farm with dreams of stardom, look no further than Captain Eddie's music management. Now, I love Elvis, okay? He fascinates me. He's like the first rock star with the power of television. They just intersected, and he went to this, this, he ascended to this level of fame that no one had ever been to before. Hence, he made all the mistakes because there was no one there to help him out, right? He got a piece of shit manager that stole from him. Bam! He stopped making music, started making shitty movies. He's not a good actor, right? Does that. Married a minor, started doing drugs, got fat, got an entourage, got even fatter, started wearing onesies, doing karate kits, splitting his fucking pants, nobody's saying shit. You look good, King. You like that? You like when my royal balls hang out? We love it, King. Keep fucking going. Starts doing pills, gets addicted. He fucking dies alone on a toilet. All right, this man kicked open all of those fucking doors for the rest of us. There were a few things my mama loved when I was a boy. There was my dad, there was Jesus, and there was Elvis. I mean, I guess us kids too, but uh, we all knew that if it came down to Elvis or us, depending on what kind of shit we'd been up to that day, the choice might not go in our favor. Fucking kids. <laughs> Fucking kids. Now, Mom wasn't a shrieking teenager that would chase Elvis down the street, at least by the time she had us anyway, but she loved the king in the kind of way that she might get all teary-eyed if the right Elvis song came on the radio, or she might unironically watch an Elvis movie if it was on the UHF station out of Atlanta, even the really bad ones. I mean, I, I guess there were good Elvis movies? A lot of good ones, yeah. a lot of good ones. Uh... I've just personally never seen one. Growing up in the shadow of Elvis like I did, I never really appreciated the king until I was much, much older. I mean, fucking Elvis, man. 
This guy, he lived the rock star life. Of course, mom didn't talk about that side of him. He's an angel strike from heaven. So she chose not to pay attention to the cool shit Elvis did, the cars, the drugs, the guns, the underage girls. Okay, that one isn't cool now, but back when Elvis did it, everyone thought it was cool, so I guess. So when I was well into my 20s, I actually learned about the king and pod friends. You might think that Elvis was just a fat guy in a onesie slurring his way through his hit songs at a drug-fueled haze. Oh. Well, even if he was... Which he was! It was the natural end to a man who was a creation of American capitalism, and goddamn, I don't think he would have done anything different, even if he could have, which he totally couldn't have. Which is why this week we're taking a good hard look at the life and times of Elvis Aaron Presley, starting with his birth as a sharecropper's son and ended with his death a fat bloated junkie on his own toilet, because the story of Elvis is also the story of America. Really? Really? So sit back, slip off your blue suede shoes, and get ready to meet the king, baby. Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now. Go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but take me over my blue suede shoes. To know anything about Elvis, first, you gotta meet Vernon and Gladys. It's a lovely couple. Mm-hmm. Vernon Presley was the kind of fellow that never really had a career. He bounced around doing whatever work he could find, living largely off the charity of weathers and government support. He spent some time in jail in 1938 when he forged a check for a pig that he'd sold to his boss, marking said pig up to from $4 to $14. That little adventure for Vernon cost the family the house and forced his wife and son to move in with relatives while Vernon did his time. This isn't to say Vernon was a criminal, it was the depression, and he did what you had to do to get by. Vernon was a deacon in the Assembly of God Church, and nothing I could find said it was a horrible father. They were just poor and from Mississippi. Vernon put it this way in a good housekeeping magazine in 1978. Well, The Rider was an ugly, untruthful book about Elvis set on TV. We Presleys were nothing but poor white trash. Well, I want to answer that right here because his comment riled the whole state of Mississippi. Poor we were, but I'll never deny that, but trash we weren't. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure what trash is. There were times we had nothing to eat but cornbread and water, but we always had compassion for people. When I was growing up, we never had any prejudice. We never put anybody down, and neither did Elvis. Now, Gladys Presley was the force in the family. A strict, no-nonsense Christian woman. Gladys was the center of Elvis's universe. And if you want to know what kind of mom Gladys was, let me quote to you from a 2013 Nidorama article. Quote, Gladys is universally described as a protective mother. Gladys would give other kids beatings if she thought they were messing with her boy, Elvis. Elvis would get a taste of this medicine himself if he ever disobeyed her when he ran off to play sports, which Gladys emphatically forbade and banned. It was always Gladys and not Father Vernon who did the discipline in the Presley household. She walked Elvis to school from as early as years to well into his teens, and when he finally protested and the joint walks ended, Gladys would often shadow her beloved son back home at the end of the school day, making sure he returned home safely. At school, Elvis was told not to eat with the cafeteria silverware, and Gladys gave him his own set of silverware to use at lunch. All through Elvis's growing up, Gladys inculcated into how special he was in his turn. Elvis promised his mother he would someday be a big success buy her a big house and a mink coat, unquote. 
So it was on January 8th, 1935, Gladys gave birth. First, to Jesse Guerin, Elvis's twin, who arrived stillborn, and then 30 minutes later, to Elvis Aaron. Elvis would have no other siblings, and as much as Gladys was the center of his universe, Elvis was the center of Gladys's. He's my special boy! By all accounts, Elvis grew up grossly overmothered and sheltered from the world as much as she could possibly manage. See the silverware? Elvis was told his entire life that he was special and destined to do great things, and to her credit, Gladys wasn't wrong, but I'm fairly sure he might have done a bit better with all of that, especially all the, the fame and fortune, if she'd eased the fuck up on him. Speaking from experience, if you take a sheltered southern boy and drop him into the big old world, he's gonna go a little nuts when he hits that first bite of freedom. And when you throw tons of money and women on top of that, he's gonna lose his goddamn mind. Which, uh, well, you already know how that turned out. When Elvis was 13, the family moved to Memphis. And it's not an exaggeration to say that this short distance changed everything about Elvis's future. Staying in Tupelo meant singing in the church choir, Moving to Memphis meant he would be singing to the entire fucking world. Because, pod friends, Memphis, Tennessee has the blues. I've been there. To be sure, other cities have claimed to the blues, but Memphis was the heart of the blues and where blues musicians came to record. Beale Street in Memphis was, and still is to a certain extent, home to bars and clubs where blues music can be heard day and night. From Wikipedia, quote, after World War II, as African-Americans left the Mississippi Delta and other impoverished areas of the South for urban areas, many musicians gravitated to the blues scene in Memphis, changing the classic Memphis blues sound. Musicians such as Howlin' Wolf, Willie Nix, Ike Turner, and B.B. King performed on Beale Street and in West Memphis and recorded some classic electric blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll records for labels such as some Sam Phillips Sun Records. Sun recorded Howlin' Wolf before he moved to Chicago. Willie Nix, Ike Turner, B.B. King, and others. Electric Memphis blues featured explosive, distorted electric guitar work, thunderous drumming, and fierce declamatory vocals. In a very real way, it was Memphis blues that became what we call rock and roll. And it was into that Memphis that dropped a teenage Elvis. Elvis had no musical training. He couldn't read or write a note of music. But he did have a good ear and raw talent, and before long, he was singing in talent shows and teen clubs. The King is quoted as saying, hmm, all right, I wasn't popular in school. I failed music, the only thing I ever failed. And then they entered me in this talent show. When I came on stage, I heard people kind of rumbling and whispering and so forth, because nobody even knew I sang. It was amazing how popular I became in school after that, unquote. And he dreamed of Beale Street. Oh, now be a star, son! He loved the music of the country stars of the day and was immersed in the black music of black churches as all good Southern boys are. And then those traditions blended the guitar blues of Beale Street, the choir sounds of the church, and the twang of country that Elvis's individual style began to take shape. And that's where he was when he walked into Sun Records in August of 1953, ostensibly to make a birthday record for his mama, which might have been true, but he also knew damn well what he was doing, walking into Sun to make said record. Because Sun had a reputation on the blues circuit by 1953, 
Ike Turner, Howling Wolf, Bollywood Bland, and a myriad of other blues stars recorded with Sun. And Elvis knew this. So when he cut his amateur record for Mama, consisted of my happiness, and that's when your heart act begins, he knew damn well that if he impressed someone, he was going to be discovered. And he kind of was because Sam Phillips, the boss of Sun Records, heard Elvis sing when it was all like, Damn that boy can sing. You must be crazy. He good. Problem is, Elvis was young, an ingenue, and he thought it was going to come quicker than what it did, and was extremely disappointed that success did not instantly fall in his lap. But little did he know exactly what Sam Phillips was looking for, and what Sam Phillips was looking for was a, if I could find a white man who had the Negro sound and the Negro feel, I could make a billion dollars. Despite, you know, actually recording all those black singers and musicians who sounded exactly like that because, you know, they were black. Phillips had Elvis in the studio several times over the next year, and he knew there was something there with this kid, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. They tried all kinds of different songs and music and backing musicians, but nothing was exactly what Phillips was looking for. Finally, almost out of exasperation, Phillips more or less told Elvis to just play everything he know, and late into the night, Elvis picked up his guitar and launched into a blues song by Arthur Credit from 1946, and this is what happened. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama, just any way you do it, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama, any way do. Going back to Wikipedia quote, three days later, popular Memphis DJ Dewey Phillips played That's All Right on his Red Hot and Blue show. Listeners began phoning in, eager to find out who the singer was. The interest was such that Phillips played the record repeatedly during the remaining two hours of his show. Interviewing Presley on air, Phillips asked him what high school he attended to clarify his color for many of the callers who would assume that he was black. Of course they did! It wasn't long after that that Elvis's career began its meteoric rise. He cut records, he appeared at the Grand Ole Opry, which uh, didn't really fit with Elvis's style. The Opry has always been pretty conservative, but the Louisiana Hayride, an Opry competitor, loved Elvis. And he performed for them several times in 54. And finally, we start coming to the fun stuff. According to legend, the Hayride sponsor Southern Made Donuts had many adherents, including Elvis Presley. It was the Louisiana Hayride and Southern Made Donuts that developed Elvis's lifelong love of donuts. And it was for Southern Made Donuts that Elvis Presley did the one and only commercial endorsement of his entire career for, you guessed it, Southern Made Donuts. He charged them exactly one box of hot glazed donuts. Don't go looking for that commercial. It was never released, and it is the holy grail of the Elvis Presley story. And that, pod friends, is a quintessentially perfect Elvis story. Ooh, donut. Look, we all really know the story of Elvis' career, and I'm not going to spend time tonight telling you what you already know. We're here to talk about the weird shit Elvis did, and pod friends, I got a lot to tell you. And free donuts are the tip, 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 tippity top of a huge fucking iceberg. Because to begin with, 
We gotta talk about Elvis' dick. It's huge! According to legend, when Ed Sullivan first saw Elvis perform prior to appearing on his show, ironically enough, on the Milton Berle show, a man justly famous for his cock. Enormous! Oh, it was. He uh, speculated that Elvis must have some sort of a enhancement. And a Sullivan producer suggested that he only be filmed from the waist up as the king's cock was the size of a full Coke bottle. And when Elvis did his trademark pelvic thrust on stage, it would suggestively uh, wiggle in his pants. Now look, Elvis certainly had big dick energy, but uh, did he have a... Uh, The answer, sadly, is not yes. Elvis Presley had a perfectly average dong. Estimates put it six to seven inches. A perfectly normal in the cock territory. Nothing to be ashamed of, but definitely not a Coke bottle. Not even the 10-ounce Coke bottles they had back in the 50s. I know. I've seen the photos. Not of his naked shillelagh, but of him and Tidy Whitey's going through army inductions. And yes, I did link them in the show notes. But those photos clearly show that when it comes to the king's cock, he was clearly a commoner. This isn't to say that the king didn't fuck. He most certainly did, though not as much as you might think. Because Elvis's idea of fucking was a bit Clintonian long before Bill Clinton was ever Clinton. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. I took this from an article on Ranker.com, quote, Joel Williamson's book, Elvis Presley, A Southern Life, describes scenes from Graceland that involved everything short of penetrative intercourse. He and Priscilla liked to play sexy doctor, and he brought other girls and women in to simulate sex with Priscilla while he watched, and in some cases filmed or joined in. The couple, Elvis and Priscilla, also photographed themselves in sexual situations with a Polaroid camera, still a relatively new invention, so nobody would see the images while developing them. And Priscilla was tasked with buying the film, and the couple went through so much film that she had to start making excuses for her abundant need, unquote. There's a side story rumor to this that one time Elvis had a commercial jetliner stop because one of the Memphis Mafia had stolen naked photographs of Elvis and Priscilla, but I couldn't find any confirmation for that, but that's not going to stop me from repeating it here. Nor is this the only rumor about Elvis's fear of penetration, allegedly because he feared sexually transmitted disease, but um, you know what? I'm going to guess that it was also deeply tied up with his religious upbringings, and it was one of those little loopholes that all of us good church-going boys that our mom knew that our mamas wouldn't approve of us getting our fuck on, so it helped us get around those so-called technical fouls. Of course, uh, <laughs> Elvis had a predilection for young girls. That's not weird or creepy at all. It actually was very, very creepy, and you're about to find out why. Priscilla was famously 14 when she met a 24-year-old Elvis. From Wikipedia, quote, Elvis's relationships with young women were pointed. Elvis quickly became attached to teenage girls and he loved to have them wearing white panties in bed with him. For a long time, he would not have sex with them, whom he described as jailbait. 
In similar terms, Brent D. Taylor has stated that Elvis's closest female relationships were usually with young girls of 13 or 14, ending as they reached late teens. Oh, he didn't have sex with those young girls, but he had pajama parties, pillow fights, and indulged in girl talk, just as he did with his mother Gladys. As a perpetual youth, Elvis was attracted to young women. Huh. Ha <laughs> ha. Wow, that certainly sounds... Hmm, that sounds familiar. Yeah. I, 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 I have heard some other stories about rock stars who are who uh, did similar things only with the uh, you know young boys that he definitely didn't have sex with it's like you know having hyper religious and controlling and deeply fucked up parents combined with unimaginable money and fame could fuck a guy up or something between all the Jesus and the overbearing and overprotective mother who never approved of any of the girls Elvis were out around. Oh, God, Elvis's mom could be a show on her own, but we got other weird shit to get to. Because there was the monkey, or rather the ape, a chimpanzee. All rock stars need a chimp, and Elvis was no exception. Elvis had Scatter, who had been on a Memphis children's morning show before growing too old to be manageable and too dangerous to be around kids. You're acting like an ape, a wild ape. Which he very much was. Though Scatter was more a member of the Memphis Mafia, Elvis's entourage, than a pet, he remained very much a wild fucking animal. Members of the Memphis Mafia told a story about taking Scatter to Los Angeles while Elvis was living there filming one of his shitty movies. I took this story in its entirety from Elvis.com. Well, Scatter was with us on our first trip across country. We had him in a cage in the back of a the station wagon. And one night, we checked into a motel in Flagstaff, Arizona. The chimp stayed in Allen and Lamar's room, and all night long, we heard Scatter going ba-dum, 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 just running back and forth in the room. The next morning, Lamar said in his real quiet voice, y'all need to come in here and see this. Scatter had gotten up in the drapes and started swinging on them and they were partially pulled down and he shit all over them. Oh God, it was a little mess. Lamar said Scatter was just throwing everything he could find. He'd even shit in his hands and throwed it on the walls. And I said, how do you think we're gonna get out of here without paying for this? Lamar said, don't worry about it. So we closed the door and we went and had breakfast at a restaurant across the way. Just about the time our food came, I looked out the window and I said, Oh my God, because the Mexican maid was knocking on the door. We all jumped up at the same time and tried to yell at her, but it was too late. Before we could get even get out of our chairs, she walked in and closed the door to start making up the room. It was early in the morning and the room was dark. Well, you can picture it, what it was like for a Mexican maid to open a hotel room and door in Flagstaff, Arizona and find a chimp inside. Scatter ran across the room and latched onto her. She went bananas, started screaming the most bird blood curdling yell I'd ever heard. We ran over there and God, that was the funniest sight. That maid came flying out that room with Scatter wrapped around her like a damn boa constrictor. He jumped on her back and fastened his legs around her waist and put his hands over her eyes so she couldn't see. We peeled Scatter off of there, but he bolted out the door and went tearing across the, the porch and ran over to the shed in front of the hotel. He went right up the drain pipe over the top and the maid was still screaming and Scatter was on the roof just dancing up a storm and laughing at us. And Alan said, 
what are we going to do? And I said, go get in the car. I'll go get the station wagon. Leave the back door open and the windows down and the door to that cage ajar and just slowly drive off. Well, that car hadn't rolled 10 feet when Scatter was on that sucker. He thought we was going to leave him, so he stuck so tight he looked like adhesive tape. We paid when we checked in, so we took the keys and threw them at the front desk and just drove off before anybody discovered how bad it was. And of course, there was Elvis and his guns. Like any southern boy, Elvis loved him some guns, and he was pretty much always packing at least one. There's a story the blackmailers threatened to kill Elvis when he was on stage and performing. Do you know what Elvis did? Call the police. Fuck no. He went on stage with a pistol in his belt and a derringer in his boot. Musicians on tour with Elvis routinely reported finding Elvis's gat laying around the green rooms or in a backstage bathroom. And Elvis would just nonchalantly come in and go, oh, oh that's mine, sorry. Reclaim his piece, tuck it into his belt, and wander off to do what Elvis did when he wasn't taking drugs or having pajama parties with teenage girls. And then there was the time that Elvis showed up unannounced at the Nixon White House carrying a chrome-plated 45 pistol. What, what, this? It all turned out fine. Nixon gave Elvis a narcotics enforcement badge, the precursor to the DEA, ironically enough, and Elvis gave Dick that shiny, shiny pistol. The photos of this meeting are pretty famous, but the part where Elvis showed up with a gun usually isn't mentioned all that often. Then, of course, there was uh, Elvis and all them TVs he done shot real good. Oh, there's a famous story about the time he got pissed and used a 38 pistol as a remote control when Robert Goulet came on the screen because apparently Elvis had a beef with Robert Goulet, which for the life of me, I cannot understand why. And there's probably a fucked up story in that that would have added 10 minutes to this podcast if I told you. But there was also the famous television shooting range out back at Graceland where Elvis and the boy would routinely shoot televisions for funsies. Though no report on whether Robert Goulet's face, face was taped to them at the time. And there was the time he shot his girlfriend's car because it wouldn't start. Old Elvis got pissed when it wouldn't turn over and put three rounds in a yellow Cadillac he'd bought for his girlfriend. And reportedly, the car started right up after that. All told, Elvis had 37 guns, including a fully automatic machine gun. Or there was the time Elvis wanted to kill his karate instructor, probably because that was the guy that would, Priscilla had left him for because of all of Elvis's constant cheating. Or how Elvis forbade cooking and eating fish in his home because the smell reminded him too much of growing, growing up poor. Or how he broke up with Natalie Wood, yeah, the actress Natalie Wood, because he uh, didn't like her smell. <laughs> non-fish related around here? Sorry, that was a cheap joke, but you know I was going to take it. Oh, and yeah, how he turned it into a bloated, drug-addled shell of a man in the years before his death. Elvis's drug habit began in the army where a sergeant gave him some amphetamines to help him lose weight and have some stamina, and he would take speed for the rest of his life. And that was fine. It was all prescribed. But when you take speed all the time, you're eventually going to need to come down from the speed to, you know, sleep. So Elvis also began taking barbiturates to counteract the speed. From Town & Country Magazine, quote, 
Like many performers at the time, Elvis was a heavy user of a number of prescription medications, including opiates, barbiturates, and sedatives. When the toxicology report of the performer's blood came back from the analysis several weeks after his death, it reportedly contained high dosages, among other things, the opiates Dilaudid, Percodan, and Demerol, as well as Quaaludes and Codeine. In the years following his death, Elvis's Memphis physician, Dr. George Nicopolis, a.k.a. Dr. Nick... Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Was implicated in the singer's death, and in 1980, Nicopolis, who had begun treating the star in 1967, had his medical license suspended by the state of Tennessee for three months for indiscriminately prescribing and dispensing controlled substances. According to the charges, in at least 20, the last 20 months of Elvis's life, the star was prescribed over 12,000 pills and other pharmaceuticals and carried three suitcases of drugs with him when he traveled, unquote. So it was that a physically, emotionally, and psychologically battered king of rock and roll sat down upon his throne in the morning hours of August 16th, 1977 and died while trying to take a massive shit. Officially, his cause of death was a heart attack, which, uh, given Elvis's lifestyle, was true. But unofficially, it is said that the king of rock and roll suffered that heart attack because he was straining to take a shit so hard because he was incredibly constipated from all the barbiturates in his system, a pretty common side effect of the heavy use. Elvis Aaron Presley died because he was straining to push out a turd as big as he was, and that is the most Elvis story of them all. Or maybe he didn't. And that's where we'll pick up next week with the afterlife of Elvis Presley. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Now, I had mentioned last week that we we're doing part three of a series about stupid shit people believe. And we did not not do that show on account of big personality test or anything. It was just that when I looked at the research for the show, I realized that if I did part three, I would just be repeating the same shit that I'd said in part one and two, only about a different bullshit thing. And I had Elvis in the hopper for weeks and I was jonesing to get to it. So I exercised editorial discretion for perhaps the first time ever doing this done podcast and went straight to the king. Maybe someday we'll go back to Enneagrams, but today is not that day. Now, next week, we will definitely do part two of this story because as wild as the life of Elvis was, his afterlife is even fucking crazier. So you got that to look forward to. Speaking of looking forward, rate and review this show. Recommend it to your friends so they will look forward to hearing it and then realize you have cruelly deceived them and you were never their friends at all. All my inevitable betrayals can be found on the social, the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. And if you are a fan of our cruel treachery, kick us a buck on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast and find all of our senseless acts of aggression at what the hell podcast.com. We are a proud member of the Seltzer Kings podcast network who would really like it if we cut back on some of the violent metaphors when we're allegedly convincing people that they should do nice things for the show. But that, they, that just ain't how the king of podcasts rolls. So for me, Dave, well, that's all right, Mama. Bledsoe, producer, why in the name of God did he do that song about the baby being born in the ghetto that is wildly racist and totally inappropriate? Gavin and all the fictional long-term residents of Heartbreak Hotel on this show, we want to say, me and Elvis, 
We were never worried about the cops. He flashed that badge from Nixon every time that we got stopped. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.